The Department of Veterans Affairs and its biggest unions seem far from an agreement on a new labor contract after a decade or so of negotiating. An arbitrator finds VA violated ground rules it established with the American Federation of Government Employees when they reopened contract negotiations last year. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the attorney representing AFGE's National VA Council, Ibadan Roberts. So when President Biden came in, VA and AFGE came to agreement, what we called a global settlement agreement, on how to restart labor management relations, which included how to restart the bargaining over a successor agreement. And so in that global settlement agreement, we agreed that the parties can each pick up to six articles to reopen, and they had to be one of the articles that went to the Federal Service Impasses Panel. So it couldn't be an article we agreed on. It had to be something that was still in dispute, which was most of the contract anyway. We started bargaining January, late February last year and had gotten through three sessions. Our sessions are two weeks on, two weeks off. It's a grueling schedule. We got through three sessions when the union filed the first national grievance over the department's conduct during negotiations and ended up filing a second grievance. So the first one was in May, the second one was in July over their continued conduct. And so this arbitrator ruled in our favor after three days of hearing that the department did engage in bad faith conduct, which really disrupted the bargaining process. Okay. And in this case, what is constituting bad faith negotiating? So there are several parts here. And the way I think about it, the department was part inexperienced part ignorant of federal sector labor law, and then part sympathetic to the substance of the Trump executive order. So first, when I say inexperienced, I'm referring to just working with unions and how to bargain, not putting take it or leave it offers on the table. That's one of her findings. They would say to us almost 50 times in a day, that they disagreed with us, they disagreed with our interests, but then they wouldn't propose anything to try to come to agreement. We're required to come to the table with a sincere resolve to reach agreement. And if all you say is we disagree and you never want to try to meet each other's interests, you're not going to get to agreement. So that's part of their issue. Part of not knowing the ignorance of the federal sector labor law is insisting that the union waive our statutory rights, such as our statutory right to bargain. They had several proposals. The department made several proposals that would waive the union's right to bargain over conditions of employment of our bargaining unit employees. And so she found several instances. She found three instances where they did insist on us waiving our rights. And then the last part being this sympathy to the substance of the Trump executive order, the department proposed to seriously cut benefits to employees, such as proposals for reprimands. We currently have that reprimands have to be proposed. The employee gets a chance to respond before a final decision is made. The department came in to take away proposals and wanted to offer nothing in exchange for it, nothing at all. So in the federal sector, if you want to change current language, you have to have a really good reason to do so. So that's what we call there's a higher burden if you want to change what's in the current language. But VA came to the table and had no reason for the change and would offer things like, give me your arm or give me your leg. And so obviously the union would say, no, you can't get my arm or leg. Let's talk about these other things that we can do. 
to have the best contract for our employees, for the department as well. Okay, so the discipline piece of things seems to be one of the outstanding issues here. Are there other major concerns here that just the VA was not offering a a counterproposal on? There were several. So we wanted to do a big overhaul of the awards article. That's one of the things that unions can play a big role in because they're not considered a management right. So we can bargain substantively. We can bargain over how it's done and when it's done and who it goes to. And so that was some of the department would say, no, we want it to be like a recommendation from the union and we make the final decision. We don't want you to play a role in that. Um, And so we disputed that. They didn't want to talk about our Title 38 hybrid employees. These are employees who are appointed or promoted under Title 38, but they have everything else, all their other rights come from Title V. So we call them Title 38 hybrid employees. And VA wanted us to waive our rights to bargain awards for them. And they're not pure Title 38, where the secretary has authority to limit our bargaining, these employees, most of their rights come from Title V. There is no limitation from the secretary for these employees. But that was one of their proposals, was to waive any right we had to bargain over awards for that large group of employees at the department. There were also a PIP case. We filed a national grievance over VA's refusal to provide employees performance improvement plans before taking a performance-based action against them. And VA did this because they felt the Accountability Act allowed them to no longer give employees performance improvement plans. So we filed a grievance on that. We won that grievance. That was Arbitrator Jerome Ross. VA filed exceptions. The FLRA upheld the arbitrator's award. VA filed for reconsideration. The FLRA denied the reconsideration. So several times we were in front of the FLRA with this case. And during this bargaining, during our term successor agreement bargaining, VA was failing to recognize the FLRA's decision on that Jerome Ross award. So we were spending days arguing with the VA over something that is settled. The FLRA settled it finally that this award was correct, that we are allowed to require PIP before performance-based actions, even if taken under the Accountability Act. And the department officials at the table were refusing to recognize it. Their words to us were, the FLRA is wrong. So that's part of what we've been dealing with. Things that shouldn't be in dispute, we are disputing and not actually getting to the heart of what the negotiations need to be. And so that is bad faith. And we're glad the arbitrator found it. And VA really needs to do better at this bargaining table. Just to circle back on something you'd said earlier, just to clarify, when you talk about authority that AFGE has in terms of awards, this is financial awards we're talking about especially now that the VA has more authority to do that under the PACT Act? Right. So these are like performance awards. If you're performing very well at work, they can give you awards for that, time off awards, um, special advancement for achievement awards. So there are a number of different awards VA can give. And we're allowed to bargain over all of those, how they're given out, how much is given out, as long as it isn't already limited by OPM regulations. We're allowed to bargain over the entirety of it. 
And that was one of the things that VA was resisting and just telling us that they disagreed and not giving any counter proposals on it. Ibadan Roberts, an attorney representing AFGE's VA National Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And this special program note, be sure to register for Federal News Network's third annual DOD Cloud Exchange, Tuesday, March 21st through Thursday the 23rd. Learn the latest and most crucial developments in moving cloud services to the tactical edge. Day One explores the enterprise cloud when we'll hear from Deputy Defense CIO Lily Zalecki and Special Operations Command Chief Technical Officer Mark Taylor. Register now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost 
incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.